Would you join with me in prayer, please? <coughs> Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity now to, to open up your word together. Thank you just for the privilege it is to be your people, to, to love in your presence and because of your presence. We give this to you and pray that you be glorified. Fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts up to you even as we open your word up to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a couple of people have asked uh, if this year we could potentially go through the book of Revelation. I thought, okay, that could be interesting. We haven't done that for an extended period of time, and it dawned on me, well, why don't we just do all the Johannine epistles? Johannine, Johannine, how do we pronounce that word? Johannine, Johannine, it's basically just an English corruption of a German corruption of a Latin way of saying Johnish. So the Johannine epistles, Johannine epistles, are John's letters at the end of the New Testament. First John, second John, third John. John's the one that wrote all of those things. And he also wrote Revelation. And, and it struck me as I was thinking about that, I have never preached on second John. I've been here for 20 years, and I have never preached on second John because I'm a bad pastor. So, I mean, I've quoted from it, but I've never preached the book. So today we're going to preach and start our Johannine epistles looking at 2 John. And I know what you're thinking, because it even came up last night when somebody was talking about So I said, well, how do you start with 2 John? Don't you have to start with 1 John and then go to 2 John? Anybody, anybody know how the Johannine epistles, Johannine epistles, are organized in Scripture? By length. It has nothing to do with when they were written, which one was written first. It's the longest one, then the shorter one, and then the shortest one. We have no idea. It's possible they were written after the book of Revelation. I don't know. So you can start wherever you want, and I've never preached through 2 John, so give me a break. We're going to start with 2 John. By the way, if you really want to impress people, say, oh, what do you guys talk about in your church? Oh, the Johannine epistle. You're going to seem like a brainiac, and they'll totally want to come to our church. So hopefully you're at 2 John already. 2 John 1.1, 1, 1, the, uh, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, and I have to stop there. I understand that's still just technically the envelope, right? It's like from to. So I get it. But who are these people? The writer just calls himself the elder, and that could be a job title. It could be I'm an old guy. It could be, hey, no, I'm wizened. More on that in a second. I'm more concerned at this moment who the chosen lady is that he's writing to, because it's an interesting question. In Greek, that's eclectikuria. It's this chosen lady, this elected noble woman. And both those words are up for debate with people as to exactly what they're getting at. The word eclectos or eclectoi, if it's in plural, means chosen or chosen one or... Is that me? Oh, okay. <laughs> and everybody's like, i got to turn off my phone. Uh, what was I saying? I lost it. Oh, chosen one. Oh, yeah, that's right. It, or even like choice, as in like the choice piece of meat. The best cut is the choice piece. This is the part that is the, 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 the part that, that God wants the most and likes the most. And he uses this word to speak, Jesus uses this word to speak about the church. When he talks in Mark about he will send his angels and gather the elect, the eclectoi, from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the, he to the ends of the heavens. 
And Jesus uses that word a lot to talk about the people of God. So eclectoi, that's a group. That's all the Christians, right? Almost always, but not necessarily always, because Paul in Romans says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and eclectos, in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. So you go, oh, okay, so eclectos can be a person, an individual. Okay, I got that. But then Paul also said to all the Christians in Colossians, as God's chosen people, as his eclectoi, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So you're like, okay, it's not only the same word again, but it's also a lot of the same sentiments that we're going to see in 2 John when he writes up to this eclectic curia. The chosen people of God, the choice morsels, need to be living like chosen people, like God chose us to be. It's both a tremendous blessing and a profound responsibility to be elected, to be chosen, to be the people of God. So when I look at 2 John, what what does it mean by that? Well, if you're asking me, and I, I am, yeah, I guess I am asking me. If you're asking me, I would argue that within the context of this letter, it makes more sense to apply it as if John is writing to a specific church and to the people within that church as opposed to a specific lady and her personal children. And I use the word lady even accurately because it's not woman. It's kuria. It's the feminine version of kurios, the Lord. So you're talking about a noble woman? Except in Scripture, the word kurios in the New Testament is used almost exclusively to talk about Jesus. So it's a little weird if you're talking about kuria being a noble woman when you almost never talk about kurios being a noble man. And I'm reminded that at the end of this little book, he talks about a similarly Eclectos' sister and her children who are writing this through him. So it makes more sense that this is, I'm writing it to a church and I'm writing it from a church where I'm writing this. And, and that all this is to this, this woman who is the lady to Christ's Lord. And I think of like Paul's extended analogy in Ephesians 5 where he's talking about the church being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom. Jesus talking about himself being the bridegroom. John himself uses an extended marriage metaphor throughout the Gospel of John and Revelation where if Christ is our Lord and the bridegroom of the church, then the church is his beloved lady. So I'm writing to you, you chosen lady and the children in your household, you, you church. In fact, I keep saying John has done this and we don't know that because he doesn't sign his epistles, does he? He doesn't say, I'm, I'm John. No, he doesn't say that he's John. But he also doesn't say that in his gospel. He's just too humble for that. He's like, you know, it's fine if I just tell you that my cousin loved me. I'm, when I bring myself up in the gospel, I'm just going to say, the one that Jesus loved, because he's my cousin and we love each other. We grew up. That's great. But the book, these books, these letters, use a lot of the same vocabulary, a lot of the same turns of phrase, ton of the, some, uh, tons of the same themes as one another, so that arguably they're all written. The gospel, these letters, the book of Revelation, all genuinely appear to be written by the same guy. And when you're talking about Revelation, he totally signed that one, right? 
He's just totally like, oh yeah, John, I'm John, and I'm telling you. Jesus spoke to John, here's what I said. Yep. Now, I go into all this for a couple reasons. Number one is I don't want to keep tripping over the authorship when we're talking about the rest of them. Just get that all done. But number two, I want to see the overarching themes in all of John's letters and books. It's, I don't ever want to just look at this and say, this is just Second John. I want to remember what he said in First John. I want to remember what he said in Revelation. I want to remember what he said in his Gospels to get a sense of the overall picture that John is getting at. Because this is a very short book. So it helps to understand it in context. Maybe that's going to be more clear as we go along. So, hopefully, you're there. The elder, probably John there, to the chosen lady and her children, probably a specific church, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Okay, before we unpack that too much, the word truth shows up three times in one sentence. At the very beginning, what do you think the theme of this book is going to be? Pretty sure he's going to be pounding the truth on here. This is the guy that started his gospel by saying, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's John who quotes Jesus And John 8 is saying, if you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he follows that up in his own uh, first John letter by saying, the man who says, oh, I know Jesus, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. I would argue to John, truth is really important. He's all about the authenticity, but also about holding on to what you absolutely know is true. There's no games playing to John. There's no getting away with it. There's no pretense. There's no affectation. There's what is true, and there's not what's true. Now, that could be a problem for some people, because John is also, we all tend to think of him as the really loving guy. So many of those love one another's came from John's gospel and John's letters, right? He's the lovey guy. So is he the lovey guy, or is he the truth guy? Which is more important? knowing that we know the truth or knowing that we're being loving to one another. Which, if you had to pick one, is more important? No, if you had to pick one, thank you. Anytime somebody goes, if you had to pick one, Jesus, if you had to pick one command that's the best, most important command, what one command is it? He goes, here's the two that work. The two are this, that you have a, a good, solid, a vertical relationship with God that's genuinely lived out horizontally. But which one of those is more important? Well, if you don't do it horizontally, you're not doing the vertical right. If you don't do it vertically, you're not doing the horizontal right. So I can't just give you the one, because if I give you the one, that's half the truth. So which is more important, that you stand on the truth or that you love sincerely? Yes. Absolutely. I refuse to, admit, to believe that there's only one of those that I can choose. It says, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, not I only, but all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. I love that he just launches off here, and, and you see this genuine, loving relationship. He's presenting all this in relational terms, but it's totally integrated with his 
focus and emphasis on the truth of God. I love you and your church. Every church loves your church because we all stand on the same truth. We're all brothers and sisters. The very concept of a church splitting or splitting from other churches because of disdain for one another means they've already forgotten what truth is and what love is. Anybody who says that we split from those rotten people over there that we can't stand because we're the mature ones don't even understand the concept of maturity. I love the way that John views truth here. It's not just a series of logical precepts, though it is. And it's certainly not a subjective, malleable thing. Well, that's whatever you want it to be. It's a capital T truth. But it's also something that fills us, that that imbues us with vibrancy, that connects us, that never leaves us. It abides in us. Like wisdom calling in the streets. Like love, truth never changes. And it never abandons us. And it never fails us. And people go, well, love changes all the time. No, it doesn't. We just love differently. We do it better. We apply it in different ways. Love itself, no, that doesn't change. That doesn't morph. It doesn't fail. We just fail to love like sometimes we fail to truth. We just don't do it because it wasn't expedient seeming at the time. The onus is on us to remain in the truth and to remain in love. So John continues with a standard greeting. This is the, so that was the envelope. This is the dear Bob. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. That's a fairly common greeting. You see that in so many of the letters, right? Grace and peace to you, right? Actually, I think I misread that. I think I misread that. Let me go back. Because, yeah, grammatically, that's not what he says, is it? He doesn't say what most of the time, most of the time it's it's a prayer. May you have grace and peace. Now let's get on to the meat. No, he says grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Oh, this isn't, oh, I hope that we have it. May you have it. This is my prayer. He goes, nope, this is a declarative statement. This is me making making a statement. No, we will have this. If we have that, you want grace and mercy and peace, then remain in truth and remain in love. We'll have grace and mercy and peace if we have truth and love. If you or if our church family or if our country is lacking in grace or missing mercy or missing peace, maybe instead of just looking for those and asking for those and expecting those, maybe we should be looking and say, wait, are we actually standing on truth? Are we actually living out love? If we're missing grace, if we're missing mercy, if we're missing peace, perhaps it's because we're missing truth and we're missing love. We're not standing on actual biblical truth. We're not living out genuine Christ-like love. There's a lot of people claiming to be doing that, but an amazing lack of that fruit of mercy and grace and peace. Just something to think about. If those should come naturally, what should we be working on? 
halfway through the sermon, I haven't even got off the envelope in the Dear Bob. I apologize. We need to get going. I'm sorry. Let's get back to the meat. It's given me great joy, he says in verse 4. Give me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, the word some isn't in the original, but it is implied in the grammar. He's like, I see that some out of your group are actually doing it right, as God commanded all of us to do. So is that an affirmation or a, hey, think about it? Yes, right? I see some of you are doing what all of us have been commanded to do. Great. He really is genuinely joyful. He is. He's a good pastor. And then he starts with this, I see you guys are standing on the truth. Says that this church is focused on the truth. They've got a good emphasis on, we know truth. We're on it. You're walking in the truth just as God commanded. Oh, many of us are. Absolutely. Good. Your doctrine is solid. Yes. That's awesome. And yet, even so far, just in the first three verses prior to this, John keeps linking truth with love, right? Truth, love, love, truth, truth, love, truth, love. I see many of you are actually doing truth. What are you waiting for? Truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. By the way, I see that some of you are actually following in truth. You're like, and love? What's the next thing he says? Like, oh yeah, totally see that you guys are following truth. You're obeying God's command. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we've had from the beginning. How about we love one another? Truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. You guys do truth. How about we work on love? Let's do that, shall we? I'm not writing you a new command. Jesus said it back in the Gospel of John. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. John says, yeah, so it's not new. I wrote about it being new several years ago. It's not new. And in case you're going, Kevin, you're just harping on this. Didn't you just do a sermon on the whole love one another? I'm like, well, technically, yes. But it's like the whole Bible keeps harping on this, especially John, over and over and over again. Why is that? Why is it like the Bible keeps saying truth and love, love and truth? Are you doing truth? Yes. Love. Are you loving? Yes. How about you do some truthing? We're extremely loving. We love everyone. Yeah, but you're embracing horrible sin in your tolerance. Where's your truth? We're all about truth. Yes, and you're grinding people underfoot. Where's your love? You ever see that in Scripture? Like all stinking over the place? Not me being redundant. It's the Bible. Take it up with the author. In fact, in 1 John, he says, you know, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Jesus said, I want you to, as I've loved you, you must love one another. And John says, yeah, when, if you claim to be following Jesus, walk like he did. If you want to truth, you've got to live truth. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, he says in 1 John, much like he says in 2 John. Well, this is an old one that you've had from the beginning, almost word for word the same. And he says this in 1 John, he says, this old command is the message you've, you've already heard. And yet I am writing you a new command, I guess, because its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. So I guess I am giving you a new command, because the old command from Christ is step out of the darkness and into the light. And love. 
The new command from John is, seriously, stay in the light, you goomba. Why would you go back to the darkness? Are you justifying despising your brother? Yeah, well, now you're back in the darkness. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? To cease to actively love, to justify disdain for someone else, to sit there and go, well, because he's scum. I hate that guy. Oh, I'm listing value neutrally until Kevin skewers a conservative and then I jump on that. Or until Kevin skewers a, 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 a liberal and then I jump on that. Sorry, that's shadowy of us. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Second John 1 5. We're still in Second John. Dear lady, I'm not always oh, called a dear lady again. I'm not writing a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And all the truthy people go, aha! Aha! We, we're following him if we do the right thing. Yes, I ask that you love one another, and this is love, that you have the right doctrine and do the right stuff. Aha! None of that namby-pamby huggy stuff. To love is to get it right. The Pharisees are correct. Righteousness. Be righteous. Be correct. Of course, that verse continues, right? It says, and as you've heard from the beginning, this is, his, this, is his lo- this is love, that you walk in obedience to his commands. And by the way, as you heard from the beginning, what is his command? His command is that you walk in love. Nuts! So to be righteous, to be correct doctrine, to obey, I have to be loving, actively engaged in loving my brother and sister, actually engaged in caring about them, actually engaged in meeting their needs. I cannot be righteous without love. I can't be loving without righteousness. Everyone who chooses to ignore sin in order to better love sinners they can't be wrong. It would offend too many people. Surely we can change that and make them feel more comfortable. Anyone who ignores the word of God, who ignores sin, who tweaks things to make sinners feel more comfortable isn't loving anyone. It's not loving to give the addict more heroin because they want it. Everyone who wants to stand on truth and grind others underfoot in the process isn't standing on truth. You have to obey. You have to do the right thing. You have to do what I think the Bible is saying. You go, you aren't even doing what the Bible is saying. The moment you start shouting and pointing your finger like that, you are not standing in the truth. If you can't balance those, if you don't love God's truth enough to make the truth the basis for genuine, unwavering love for those around you, you're doing it wrong. And I know it's, it's so easy to think, oh, Kevin, you've covered this. I'm like, uh-huh, I have. How many of you heard me cover this? I have to include my own head and my own heart here. How many of you heard me cover this? How many of you, since ever hearing me cover this, still screwed this part up? Which is why the Bible keeps repeating it. I need to remind myself with this. That we go, wait, 
there always has to be a balance. And if I lean one direction or the other, I miss the fact that it's always supposed to be vertical, horizontal. It's always supposed to be objective truth lived out subjectively with the people around us in a meaningful, relational, loving sort of way. Because then, if I'm not just banging around in the darkness, that's when I find mercy and grace and peace. And if I say, I'm all about truth, or I'm all about love, and yet I don't have grace, mercy, and peace, I'm missing something. I love that John gives us a rubber-hits-the-road kind of application of this. Because in some ways, a quick and surfacey reading might go, and then he totally throws that to the wayside. He totally ignores everything he just said. What are the chances, by the way? It's a short letter. Maybe even one page, man. If you wrote it wrong, you could have gotten, well, no, I did that wrong. I, I lost I lost track. Let me go back. Many deceivers who, who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. By the way, the scariest word in that is not deceivers. It's out. Much like we'll see when we get to 1 John, the problem here is isn't that there's a bunch of non-Christian pagans out there teaching things that aren't Christian. Go figure. He's like, well, yeah, of course you're going to see that. That's not the problem here. These are people coming out of the church to preach not Christianity. They're going into the world that have apparently come up with newer, cooler stuff than, you know, the Bible ever did. Beloved, always be leery of anybody that says, nobody else has ever come up with this before, but we understand it. Here's a juicy new thing. Sure, there's there's all there's gonna be all sorts of stuff in here that maybe no one's ever said before. Okay. But maybe just be sober about that when you hear somebody come up with that. Somehow these guys are teaching that Jesus isn't really the Messiah. He isn't really the Son of God. Or else, or else they're teaching that the Christ's spirit only seemed like he was human. I don't know. Some sort of nonsense where they're like, yeah, it's not really like the Messiah took on flesh. Whatever the case, these guys are ambassadors of the kingdom of God who are leading people by their teachings and actions farther away from God. That should be terrifying as a concept. You literally took it upon yourself to be an ambassador for the kingdom. Yes. And then this is the kingdom you're showing instead of God's kingdom. You're showing them something else and saying, that's what, that's what it means to be a Christian. You may not be able to fathom this in today's world. The idea that there might be people you go, oh, please, stop looking at her and thinking that's what we mean by being a Christian. Please do not listen to him and think that's what a Christian believes. Can you, can you stretch your brain a little bit to picture what that might be like in today's world? People, you go, please do not judge Christ by all the Christians. Many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out from us into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Which is interesting. John's the only one who ever uses that word, Antichrist. And he only uses it in these couple of letters. 
we read it back into that. We talk about the Antichrist in the Thessalonians. We talk about the Antichrist in Revelation. We talk about the Antichrist in Daniel. We go, yep, that word's not used there. Concept is, but here, he's not even talking about some shadowy figure in the end time standing in the... It's you. It's me. It's anybody that comes from the church and is teaching something that draws us away from Christ. That's, that's not Christ-like. It's anti-Christ-like. Anyone who stands against the truth, stands against the ministry of Christ, stands against the heart of Christ, is anti-Christ. We go, yeah, all those hateful pagans and non-Christians in the world go, no. The anti-Christ is a Christian who has come out of the church because they found something better. This makes your skin crawl if you think about it. Because we love to look at them and say Antichrist. And John is like, but they came from us. They came from us. Watch out, he warns the church, that you don't lose what you've worked for, that you may be rewarded fully. If I want to use Johannine language from Revelation, don't get your lampstand removed. Hold on to it. Don't get so enamored with the progressive or the creative or the new and improved or the we're the only ones that understand this. That you lose sight of what we've been given in Christ through Christ. I don't care whether that's bizarre Christologies. I don't care if that's gospels that say what we really need to focus on is social issues, not doctrine. I don't care if that's a gospel that demands moral rectitude according to my interpretation of morals rather than extending God's grace. If it's better than Jesus, it's not better than Jesus. If it's better than the, than the gospel, it's wrong. He says, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teachings of Christ doesn't have God. Conversely, whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Playing games with Christ means losing touch with God. You might be incredibly moral-seeming, or you might be incredibly socially aware, but you've lost touch with God somewhere in that. But embracing Christ, embracing the Word fully means you have both the Father and the Son. You have this full interpretation. It's a lot like marriage, actually, in so many different ways. And I, I, I don't want an avant-garde marriage. I don't want to experiment with more. I don't, I don't want to invent a modern take on marriage. I don't want to put all sorts of rules and strictures on marriage that the Bible doesn't even, so I can make it something cooler than even... I don't want to... I just want to do marriage good. That's what I want to do. I want to do marriage, but do it good. To the degree to which I'm reinventing marriage, I'm probably doing it wrong. I think. Because to run ahead of something, by definition, is to leave that behind. And I don't want to do that. I mean, I like the idea of being as clever as the next guy. But I ain't. So anything I'm doing that adds to this is just detracting from it. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, John says, don't even take him into your house. Don't welcome him. And people go, see, John's already screwed it up. He's like, love truth, but also love people. And then he's like, hey, leave them on the street because they don't preach the truth. Clearly, John is contradictory, correct? Man, ten verses into it. How contradictory? How how short an attention span do we think John has? 
I don't think he's being contradictory. I think he's meaning this in its first century Middle East sense. He's not saying he should be a jerk, but he's like, in, in, in this Middle Eastern first century sense, there's this idea of you should welcome the stranger in your household, say, here, let me give you food, let me give you lodging. How do I support you on your journey? Let me do that. He's not just writing to a woman in her house. He's writing to a church. He's like, guys, I'm not saying turn your back on non-Christians because that's why you're here. I want you to be reaching out to them. I, I expect that those people aren't going to be preaching biblical things. I'm not talking about leaving these guys out in the street in the cold. They're knocking going, I'm really hungry. And you go, no, <laughs> handlebar mustache. No. But he's talking about fellow churchy people who preach a new and better gospel. And he's like, it doesn't intertwine truth and love. It's not preaching a biblical Christ. It's not a matter of abandoning them or being a jerk to them. It's a matter of not letting the Nicolaitans preach, not letting the Gnostics influence your congregation. Don't give them a voice. Don't help them along their way. Don't do it. It's a matter of loving your church family so much that you stand solely on the truth without despising the people that don't but without encouraging the people who don't. Now, that could be complicated to you. It could be simple to you. But I will say to this planet, and specifically to our culture right now, for most people, this is unfathomable. I disagree with you. Well, whatever. Now I hate you. Okay. Or even, I disagree with you. All right. Well, but you're still going to encourage me to be wrong? Yes. No. So you hate me? No. The reason I'm not going to encourage you in your wrongness is because I love you. I'm going to do it out of love, and I'm going to do it in a loving way. But I'm not going to prop you up and help you and support you in doing something wrong. Is that loving or hateful? That's loving. To most of the people you're going to run into on a daily basis, that is unfathomable. And you can give the best, most reasonable, rational argument in the world. And it's going to go, because they're not being rational. That's not what they're trying to do. And when I say they, I mean us. Because you're us and they also, right? Your usness is their they. So, you know. We all have to stop and go, wait. Vertical and horizontal at the same time. Truth and love at the same time. I need to make sure that what I'm doing, I'm standing on God's truth and I'm loving because of the truth. John says, don't encourage them in what they're doing because anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. You're actually helping the toxicity. This isn't about tolerance versus intolerance or, well, do you love them or do you hate them? No, it's about acceptance of toxic religion versus love for the truth and truth in love. I don't want to accept or tolerate, which ultimately supports your very wrong, very toxic stuff that you're doing that are drawing people away from Christ. I want to stand in truth and do it lovingly. And I want to love you by standing in the truth. Paul still loved Apollos, even though he's like, oh, Apollos is kind of ignorant. But hey, you want to follow Apollos? Great. I, I'm not going to stand against that because he's still my brother. Even if I disagree with him, he's still my brother. Paul can dispute with Peter rather sharply and still love Peter. And Peter could go, oh, no, I love Paul. He was actually right. They can disagree and do it lovingly because they're still brothers in Christ. 
You can apparently do that. Stand on truth because you love someone and because you love the Lord. And have that guy write a book going, hey, he was right. Apparently you can do that. But to wink at sin or to tolerate heresy because it's, it seems like it's the friendly thing to do or the attractive thing to do or the progressive thing to do or the thing that makes me feel righteous in doing. To do that, that does not show Christ's love. It doesn't show the truth. In 11 verses, John makes a quietly compelling case to show and to tell us that love isn't about making everybody happy or even making everybody feel accepted. But to make everybody feel valid, to say, I love you, I think you're wrong, and I won't help you be wrong, but I love you. I'll reach out to you, and I need to reach out to my brother and my sister. Love is about sharing Christ and his truth without prejudice, without hesitation, without artifice, without affectation. Love is about disagreeing but still embracing our family members in the church everywhere, but not embracing sin, not accepting that everybody who wants to do everything that they want to do is automatically going to get a voice because God always lets everybody say whatever they want because he's so nice. It's about making sure that we base that love on the truth of God and not on our personal preferences one way or the other. John says, you know, I I actually got a lot to write to you about. I've got much to write to you about, but I've already spent 12 verses. I don't want to use paper and ink anymore. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. And just like that, with this started with a relational emphasis and ends with a relational emphasis about being church family together and having joy. Even as I sit there and go, hey guys, maybe I'm going to correct you here. I want to have joy because I see you. And at that, John drops the mic and leaves the room. But what do you learn? I don't know, there's a lot of things you can learn, but you are, you are God's eclectoi. You are God's chosen people, the choice morsels. And he has chosen you, you, to live and to love like he lived and loved, to genuinely love in his truth. And he has given you his truth. And as we talked about in Sunday school, not only did he hand you a Bible, but the ability to write that on your heart that you might not sin against him. Let me give you truth. The, the GPS, the floor plans, the blueprints, let me give this to you so that you never lose this crucial balance. You never make it about you or about me. We never make it about feelings or about doctrines or about preferences. Not that you or I or my feelings or our doctrines or our preferences are bad, but it's not about those things. All of those things are at their healthiest when it's all about Christ and trying to accurately and lovingly reflect Christ in everything that we do. That's why we do it. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that when you look at us, you don't just see your children, but when you look at us as a group, 
you see your beloved chosen lady. The lady sitting next to the Lord. Thank you that you see us as your bride, your beloved. Help us to see ourselves that way. Not so that we get haughty, but so that we feel beloved and that we recognize what an awesome privilege it is to be your beloved. Help us to beloved all those around us in your truth and for your glory because we are your kingdom in jesus name amen